The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us this afternoon. We're streaming the Revision Symposium from the Ancestral Lands of the Ghana people. And um, I thank you for joining us. I'm Debbie Pryor, the Artistic Program Manager here at Guildhouse, and I'm excited to introduce the final speaker session today, Utopian Future, with Angie Butler, Jamie Lewis, Catherine Truman, and Joel Spring. These four artists and leaders will discuss genuine and critical change within the arts and cultural sector, celebrating the resourcefulness of artists and investigating how organisational models and individual arts practices shifting during and post the pandemic. Jamie Lewis is an artist and CEO and executive director of NextWave. Her focus seeks alternative models of leadership, governance and structure. And under her directorship, NextWave have taken brave and necessary steps to remodel their mode of delivery away from the festival and onto new ground. Catherine Truman is an established visual artist and co-founder and co-director of Grey Street Workshop, established in 18, 18, 1985. In addition to <laughs> celebrated arts practice, Catherine is a leading thinker and mentor. Her commitment to the community and stewardship of arts development holds a critical role in the South Australian arts ecosystem. Joel Spring is an architecture graduate and, an, and a multidisciplinary artist, currently focusing on the contested narratives of Australia's urban culture and Indigenous history in the face of ongoing colonisation. He is a part of Future Method Studio, a collaborative practice working within architecture and installation. And Joel is currently the guest editor of Runway Magazine's um, edition 44, titled Time. Leading the session today is Andy Butler, a writer, curator and artist, in addition to the acting artistic director of Westspace. With an interest in investigating structures of power and the political, cultural and interpersonal legacies of Western history, Andy has a powerful voice within his writings for publications such as the Saturday Paper and the Monthly. Welcome to you all. I'll hand over to Andy. Wow, thank you so much for those introductions, Debbie. Um, it's really great to be joined by such an incredible uh, community of peers today. My name's, as Deb mentioned, my name's Andy. I'm coming to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. And I just want to pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging. The theme of the panel today is utopic futures, which depending on where you spent lockdown, uh, you might have different thoughts about what utopic future may look like. And you might have, you know, different levels of cynicism or excitement. But I know that here in Melbourne and up in Sydney as well, where Joel is, I feel like that was, you know, quite a different experience in the small art sector than maybe what has happened um, around the rest of the country, um, you know, perhaps in South Australia as well. So I'm really excited to be in conversation with Catherine Truman today as well, and all of you lovely people that have made the time to listen to us talk on a Saturday afternoon. I might begin by asking sort of everyone to give us a little bit more of an insight into what they do and the organisations that they work for, and then sort of kick off the conversation a little bit. I was really taken with the sort of pre-discussions that we had that Jamie, Catherine, Joel and I all wear a lot of different hats, uh, you know, across being arts administrators, artists, human beings, but 
usually very busy people that are embedded within an arts community and really trying to support a lot of people. We have a lot of expertise in the room today. I think it's interesting that Jamie mentioned that um, Next Wave started in 1985, the same year that uh, Catherine's Grey Street project started. It's also the year that Jamie was born. So there's, you know, a few different generations here, a lot of different perspectives, and I think it's going to be a really rich conversation and hopefully positive. We're trying to keep it positive while, while critical. But yeah, to kick it off, I'd really love to hear, you know, a bit more of a deeper intro into what everybody does. Um, and maybe we can start with you, Catherine, being our uh, resident Adelaide Thanks very much, Andy. It's such a pleasure to be here. I've been um, attending this symposium all day and I've been elevated by it. <laughs> it's been so positive. It's, uh, it's really wonderful. Um, I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking today from Ghana land and it's unceded land and I want to pay respect to elders past and present. Wow, I, I do wear a lot of hats uh, in my life and um, all really enjoyable. Uh, first one is um, a partner of Grand Street Workshop that indeed was established in 1985 and it, it still feels really vital uh, and evolving today. So uh, along those lines, I've worked with lots of different people and it's been a wonderful experience. I always talk of the workshop as being my legs so it's a great foundation um, for, from which I can work. Uh, and I always think that's really important. It also has um, opened up a lot of um, mentoring opportunities for me. So I have another hat as a mentor and I've uh, had fantastic opportunities and experiences working with people from oh, cross-generational and um, a lot of different levels of experience too. I've learned a lot through those processes. And so I also think that that's another important uh, role, particularly when we're talking about um, uh, trying to envisage a, a utopian future. I'm not quite sure really ever what that word means because everybody's view of utopia and dystopia are quite different. And I'm not sure actually, you know, I'm going to throw a real clanger in the works right from the beginning, whether beginning with that platform of um, trying to find what is perfect in the world or the best way of being is actually good for us. Um, but the pandemic is a case in point. It's really thrown us into some interesting challenges that um, have forced us to think quite differently about how we live and where we live and who we work with. The other thing that I, I need to mention is that I am a research-based artist and have been for 42 years, um, and my interest has been working across disciplines. So I think, you know, my pathway to utopia has been being challenged by other people, by thinking about the knowledge that we carry, what we can share, and the knowledge that we don't have, all the things that we don't know, because that's a great catalyst for, for art making and for science making. Um, so I work with a lot of scientists, biomedical science um, from the science area, and more recently plant scientists, because I'm very interested in that human-plant crossover. It gives me a great platform from which to work. The, the latest show that I've had was a result of two residencies. One was working in the ophthalmic department at Flinders University, and the other at the Botanic Gardens and the Herbarium at the uh, South Australian Botanic Gardens. 
looking at the role of light in, in vision and growth, so how the human eye works and how plants work and how they both photosynthesize. Um, that was the basis of my um, project called Shared Reckonings. And it's called Shared Reckonings for a reason because that subject matter was merely a hook for me to be able to work with a lot of different people from different disciplines. <clears throat> and of course, during that time, um, we were hit by incredible um, climate change extremes. So the, the bushfires that, that went through Australia, that was the beginning of my um, project. As I, you know, I spent a year working with other people in residencies and universities and the herbarium. And also, so the next year was going to be spent making things in my studio in response, in creative response, keeping those collaborative platforms in mind that, I, that I've established the previous year. And the pandemic then hit uh, as well. So it was, it was absolutely fascinating um, uh, working with people who, who do think quite broadly about where we live and how we live, using the body as a, as a basis for that, but also other aspects of the living world and how they're affected. So, you know, it's been a very rich and challenging couple of years and I'm really interested to hear what other people have got to say about what their experience has been. Thank you so much, Catherine. I, I feel like you've gotten us off to a really amazing start because it's really interesting to hear about this project you did at the beginning of the bushfires of Black Summer that seems like that was the beginning of this sort of extended series of crises. And it, and it sounds like, yeah, I think we're at a point where we're all starting to really keenly understand the political, cultural and economic context within which we work as cultural practitioners, which hopefully we can sort of unpack a little bit more amongst amongst all the panellists today, sort of going way to the to the other end of, of the intergenerational discussion today. It'd be great to hear from you, Joel Spring, just a, a quick intro into sort of what you do, what you're doing at the moment, especially sort of in relation to PARI, which is a new RE in Parramatta, for those that don't know, so out of all the organisations that are represented here, Next Wave from 1985, Green Street, uh, Green Street Workshop from 1985, West Bay started in 19, 1993. We also have Joel, who works uh, with Pari that was started two years ago, Joel, three years ago. Yeah, it'd be great to hear, you know, just a brief intro into sort of what you do across. Fuck, so many hats, yeah. Easy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yaman Damarang, I'm, I am streaming to you from Gadigal Country in a site that is University of Technology, Sydney. This is a place that I work and I do research from. Yeah, I'm a... I'm a artist and arts practitioner, I guess, uh, trained in architecture. I, I grew up and worked in and around Redfern for a very long time. Um, it's kind of where I got involved with, um, yeah, making uh, work. I used to work in um, community broadcasting at Radio Skid Row, which is a radio station, community broadcaster here in Sydney, um, on a show called Survival Guide, which is about, um, yeah, gentrification in Aboriginal communities, but particularly in Redfern, sort of crucible of, Aboriginal self-determination in Australia. And uh, yeah, today, actually, I was, I came by the train from Kari to here to stream to you. So I was in a, we are having our third visioning session for what, what we're looking to do as a, as, a, as a kind of relatively new, but, you know, hugely sort of spread and really um, incredible kind of 
Ari, I, I was invited to join on like maybe three or four months ago. So like, really, I'm very new in relationship and just have always been a massive fan. So it was such a humbling opportunity to be invited in to sort of think about what Ari could do in the future and what we could do better. So today I got to facilitate around the beginning of our day, which was us sort of, you know, talking through what are our collective trajectories and what are the things that we're looking to do. And we um, were really fortunate to have Uncle Chris Tobin, who's a direct elder and direct um, artist and practitioner, sit in on our kind of journeys. Because, yeah, I think first and foremost, it's really important to think about from what context you um, represent from and from what context you operate within, right? Like we are all in a sovereign relationship with sovereign territories, Aboriginal land, which was um, never ceded, sovereignty was never ceded. Whether or, not, whether or not you acknowledge it, you are in relationship to country, right? And it's... I think, an opportunity as Paris quite young to really try and embed that um, at a structural and kind of personal level as well. So that's been really exciting. Kind of more broadly, I think, I don't know, I, I don't identify as an architect. I don't really identify as an artist too much either. I just love art. I love talking to people about art. And I think for the most part, a lot of the projects I like to work on is specifically that. It's about connecting with people. Hey, like, I think, Catherine, you kind of summed it up really beautifully in the projects that you sort of have been able to craft and facilitate discussions and connections with other disciplines and other people. I think that that's, for me, it's a huge point of it. <laughs> and so kind of being involved at PARI recently, which is um, an artist-run initiative started in um, Parramatta to support and represent Western Sydney and Western Sydney arts and culture. So I think it was built by artists and people working in Western Sydney seeing, you know, what were the default trajectories and hierarchies that existed in Sydney and being like, fuck that. Like, how can we do things a bit differently and very different? And so it's incredibly exciting. And I think that's that's probably where I'm going to cut the intro off. (laughs) Yes, so great to be drawn by you, Joel. And I feel like there's already really interesting through lines between, you know, what Catherine um, and yourself brought up that it just seems like, I don't know, I just think art is such a social activity, even though we kind of a lot of the time focus on the shiny outcomes that we seem to consistently be on this hamster wheel producing, that it's actually the relationships and the talking and the friendships and the community that you're embedded around, whether they're artists or not, that really keep this whole art and culture thing going. And it'd be great to throw over to you, Jamie, to give us a sense of of where you're at with Next Wave and as the one performing artist in the room. Um, Yeah, if you want to give us a sense of of your practice and Next Wave and sort of of where you're at. Thanks, Andy. Hi, everyone. It's interesting. I'm really good friends with Tian Joel, so I feel like I was there in the early conversations about Pari and the imaginings of that, and it's really exciting to see how it's been growing. My name is Jamie Lewis, and I I come from the little island nation of Singapore in the Malay archipelago, and, and so really also want to acknowledge being a guest on this continent, wearing many hats uh, as an artist, uh, practitioner over the last 11 years of being here and and only in February this year started at Next Wave and, and so from, from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, I as well as Next Wave is very privileged to traverse the land and waterways of this continent of many nations to share in the act of art making and culture building grounded on justice, friendship and care. This always was and always will be Aboriginal then. And, you know, Joel, you, you brought that up. And I think, yeah, the positionality is a very important thing for me. Um, I have a practice as a performance maker. Uh, I was trained in theatre and kind of moved into more uh, immersive uh, 
the interactive participatory kind of forms, but also work as a dramaturg for other with other artists. And, and you know, dramaturgy for me often is really about context. So my primary practice, you know, really centers around the idea of context is everything, which I guess also has really informed my participatory kind of performances. A lot of my work is site responsive, so taking place and place can be physical site or you know historical context, people, community, uh, but yeah, site responsive work. Um, and I also work a lot with food and conversation. So I cook and we eat and I facilitate conversation and storytelling around the table. Um, I guess, you know, more, more recently, a lot of my work has also shifted where I facilitate other people to make work. So often facilitating communities as artists, uh, especially people who don't usually think of themselves as artists. And, and I guess uh, across the board, a lot of my work audiences are always there as participants, uh, very active participants in the work. So that's my role, my work as an artist. And I, I, I guess coming into a role as CEO at Next Wave as well, it's a really interesting space. I think over the years, wearing multiple hats as an arts manager and, you know, to pay your rent and things like that. I've never really thought of them as different things. I've looked for ways in which there are many streams of similar practices. And I, I guess even as a performer, I perform as Jamie and I often talk about my craft as facilitation. And so I think across the board, it, it, the idea is about facilitating conversation and storytelling, um, facilitating ways in which we can uh, look at our positionality and look at the way we look at the world and try and shift the way we look at the world each and every time uh, we encounter each other. I guess is how I would really describe my kind of overall vision of what I do. Yeah, and so I guess, you know, I started the role at Next Wave in February this year, uh, 11 years after being here on this continent as an artist. And so, it, 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 you know, in a very auspicious way, as Andy mentioned, the organization started in 1985 when I was born. And, you know, kind of wrapping up 10 years as an artist in Australia, you know, kind of feeling a lot of that momentum and a lot of that, that yeah, coming into this space and, and really being able to own that as a, you know, youngish person and, and a woman of colour. It's been really exciting in so many ways, but also to inherit an organisation that is quite close to my heart as a young migrant um, back in 2012 was part of the festival with uh, a collaborator and who I still continue to collaborate with today in a long-term art marriage. And so, you know, the, the significance of the organization is really not lost on me uh, when I think about my peers and colleagues who have continued to have careers and shows that still tour because they, they started out in that festival. And so, yeah, but I think has been mentioned, you know, I, start, I, I came into an organization with a lot of the instincts of uh, independent artists and the way we've practiced or, and the way we, we built relationships and the way we transact with, with organizations, um, having been a peer assessor, having been practicing, having, you know, an arts manager. And, and I guess my previous roles in arts management also was in a peak body for the performing arts. And so I have, I guess, a quite a broad overview of how the arts operate. And a lot of my personal practice traverses the space of visual art and performance and public programming kind of context as well. So I guess, yeah, a lot of the things I've learned as a practitioner, I've come into an organization only to have some of those instincts confirm that we cannot continue to do the way, uh, we cannot continue to, to do things the way it's been done um, for practical reasons, but also I think for, for philosophical reasons. And, you know, having been based in Melbourne has been really rich culturally, 
But actually, when I think back, a lot of my work's been actually in other places. And so often I am challenged by the perception that Melbourne is the, set, the mecca of contemporary practice or for experimental work, and it's not true. And so I think that was the one big thing I, I came into to Next Wave and decided we need to shift this. Uh, it is not. So how do we put the magnifying glass on other places, especially regional and remote communities? Um, you know, what does that mean? So that's one. And then the other thing, I think a big thing was looking at the longevity of the organization and thinking about what does this mean to be 36 years old and, and what, what have we accumulated in 36 years old and it's cohort after cohort after cohort of artists. If we lost our funding tomorrow, we are so rich. We have got so much to share. Um, and so for me, looking at how we really built in an intergenerational context and own that context and, and start from there uh, was a big one. And so that's the two things that kind of really drove how we, how I, I've been remodeling at that organization. And, you know, have you talked more as the questions come up, but I think I, I might leave the introduction there too. We might actually come back to you momentarily, Jamie, to ask a little bit more about that structural shift, because I feel like you know, as someone who is based in Melbourne and, and was a part, also a part of the Next Wave cohort in 2019 for the Next Wave Festival that never was. It is, you know, nationally such a significant organisation. I can see some Adelaide-based artists in the Zoom room who have also participated in Next Wave and have, you know, really incredible significant practices that were really amplified by that festival. And it's obviously not a festival anymore. It has really shifted. You have brought so many philosophical changes to it, Jamie, that I think, in my experience anyway, you know, similarly inheriting this weird organisation with a strange legacy um, at a time when everything just stopped working. All of a sudden, everyone is asking these really deep questions about, you know, well, what the hell are we meant to do now as artists independent artists? And I feel like, you know, my arts administrator nerd heart went a flutter when I read your new strategic plan, which obviously you don't need to go through point by point because it's maybe not, you know, that sexy to talk about in a Zoom, but I'd really love to hear the sort of, the really deep questions that you brought to that organisation as an artist and what has driven this, this change, especially around ideas of working slower in relationships. Thank you. Uh, that that was a very uh, what you know a, a, a real compliment uh, to to imagine that strategic plans could be uh, sexy and fun to read is uh, a real treat for me and a real affirmation. So really appreciate that. I think you know I I think this this sentiment's probably shared. Like you know when you think back on your last major project, right? How long did that really take to get up? From its seed idea, from, from the time you started seeding an idea to that time you decided, okay, I've got the stamina to start producing the work. And when in the performance context, especially, when you decide you're going to produce the work, it's not the, it's not, it's not the first day you're in the, in the studio working creatively. When you decide you're ready to pursue this work, that, that first phase is actually mapping out okay, what do I need? Which funding cycle are you going for? Which opportunity, what residency do you want to try and approach so you can have that first um, creative development period pl plotted out? You know, like that's the extent of like where you start from. And when you finish, like when you premiere the work, it's at least two years later. 
assuming everything goes as planned, assuming you get every funding cycle you ask for or you broker that partnership on the first go and you get in. Otherwise, it's, you know, I have a work sitting in the background still that I'm still chipping away, waiting for one final development that started back in 2018. It's not done yet. It's far from done. I haven't, I haven't sold the work. I don't, I don't have a presenter for it. Like that's how long works actually take to make. So I think one big thing for me was why in a biannual festival model, how do you expect an early career practitioner to make your most ambitious work in one and a half years and be ready to present it at a major festival. Um, so that in itself was already this idea of like, let's not even talk about going slower. The fact is that's how long it takes, you know? And so how do I then actually embed that structure of making? Um, because then also coming back to like, what, what is next wave, right? Festival or not? It's a platform. Next Wave doesn't make work. Next Wave uh, is a container in which artists make work. So if that's how long artists take to make work, then we shift the container um, to enable actually that process to happen. So actually at the heart of it, that, that's, that's for me coming back to that. That, that was really the, the, the ambition um, in, in this context. And, and for me to come back to some of those like core rationale stuff, uh, of course, a lot. That's a lot of concurrent things. I mean, primarily also resource-wise, that you know, it's it's a very different time. And and if I really wanted to then go, okay, what needs at least this amount of time and at least this amount of money, then actually we can't deliver festival <laughs> uh, because that money is not going to artists. Then that money is going to marketing and 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 some of those kinds of really weighing up those realities and going, how do we reorientate this? Um, I think also then going back to the, the idea of, re, you know, the, the counterpoint of decentralizing is reorienting, right? So for, for me, it was really about going, well, what are other people, you know, what's the aesthetic? What's the power? Whose who's knowledge? Um, who else do we want to center and, and look towards? And so um, structurally, you know, where we started from is then to um, have appoint an artistic directorate uh, across the continent. And of course, also, I wanted to say, you know, states, states are a really blunt way of orientating location, um, but it is within the kind of, you know, funding structures that we work within. And so I went with that to start. And so we have an artistic directorate member across this continent, one in each state. Um, and, and I think coming back to a lot of stuff, Catherine and Joel, you were saying about relationships, you know, if we're going to engage nationally meaningfully, then I'm not going to sit in Melbourne and pretend I, I have all that intel and all that relationship and all that knowledge. I think over the years, I've accumulated a lot of that. I've, I've collected surrogate family in my artistic friends and, and peers, but but actually people who continue to live where they work uh, and work where they live, they're the ones with the insight and the intelligence and the relationships and the network. So how do I build a structure in which we trust them and extend on that? And so, so that was the very first premise of doing that uh, National Artistic Directorate. And from there, um, the, the rest of it kind of played itself out. You know, if we're going to then commission new work through Kickstart, which is a legacy program for 20 years, then now we're going to do that nationally with the support of this, you know, this intergenerational relationship with an artistic director who's a bit more experienced, 
uh, and has accumulated those relationships. And, and so much of our practices is really about extending these relationships, right? And a number of times, you know, my work, forget the making art part and making work. So much of my work as an artist has been to introduce somebody to somebody else. So um, so really just building on that premise. And, and so with Kickstart now, we are commissioning artists where they live and work. Um, and, you know, when we say that, of course, the work isn't locked in to be there, but we're asking them to consider the context in which they start from. But this means you can actually more meaningfully sit with elders or with community or with place. Um, and, and these things also mean consultation's not an afterthought. This is actually your starting point. So for me, also, the, the fundamentals of making work becomes... Um, it just makes sense <laughs> and and all, all these things I guess again the instincts have come from having been having struggled with some of those processes myself or or having tried to like embed some of that for my own practice and now I'm going okay actually how do I switch next wave structures in order to enable artists to do some of those things and so yeah I guess I mean yeah you know I can go into detail of every programming stream but you know I think that that's the the basis of the unpacking of the festival and and once you do that as well then you're freed up to do a lot of many different things because the festival is not your one container anymore and so you know we'll be announcing all those things as we go so you know stay tuned but but I think yeah at the heart of it some of that comes back to to those realities. Well, there's so many different threads to sort of pull out from there but one that I kind of want to start with and sort of you know um, maybe bring Catherine into conversation a little bit more is that you were talking about you know the realities of how long it takes to get a project up and the structures of resources that you need to be a practical professional artist including funding resources, peers, infrastructure, relationships and the reality is, is that we find ourselves within a situation where those resources don't exist in the same way as I have done in the past. You know, there was the glory days of next wave that I remember on the Emily Sexton when it seemed like there was just cash sort of being like thrown everywhere. There were really well supported sort of sort of projects. And I sort of came into next wave at a point where it felt like we were still trying to cling on to that level of ambition. The reality was is that there's actually just not the political appetite or the funding resources to actually be as ambitious as we'd like to be. But I recall in our um, previous conversation, Catherine, that you were saying you started the Grey Street Workshop at a time when the South Australian government was trying to sort of really invest in sort of grassroots sort of yeah. um, sort what, of activity. What a utopia that was. Yeah, what a utopia. <laughs> and here you are sort of 36, later, 36 years later, and I'm always blown away by people who have careers that are decades long because I feel like a successful practice for me is one that I can have for at least four decades but I just really want to sort of get a sense of as things have gone up and down since the 80s since all these different sorts of funding landscapes and resourcing landscapes and communities and and ideas have shifted how have you yeah, how have you stayed in it? How have like what? How are you still breathing? <laughs> yeah, how are you still breathing? Running an RE since nineteen eighty five. Look, it's the answer is really simple. It is the relationships between people, um, and yes, we've been through a lot of cycles. This is another cycle, um, but you know, as you know, artists have always been the first responders. You know, we're we're always right there. Where the translators, the responders, the reflectors, you know, 
And um, it's not something that you, I, I don't think you go by, by that kind of thing. You, you are it. You know, you're, you, you're passionate right from the start uh, about it. And unfortunately for us, that is always the case because we will do it for nothing a lot of the time, you know. We're good at that, aren't we? We, we know about that. As a group, though, you know, you're facing a lot of different uh, levels of experience and different levels of uh, enthusiasm. Usually when you come together in an artist-run initiative, the, the bond is that you want, to, you want to be an artist, you want to practice as an artist. You might not know what that means, but that's what you want to do for your life. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to fund it, you know? And I can't say that, that it's... Um, changed a great deal over the 42 years of practice. I mean, we've had samples of governments going, oh, yeah, that's what an artist does. Well, they're valuable to culture. Yeah, we need culture. Let's throw them some money. And then they forget about us for a while and then they, somebody, you know, sees some hand waving in the distance and they might throw you some more money. But the fact is that, that we're necessary to life. We're necessary to balance and imbalance um, because we do translate what's happening in the world, you know, at, at the coalface of the world. It's not a late response. It's right absolutely on time. And unfortunately, this government that we have at the moment isn't au fait with the level of sophistication that this country has in the arts. I wish it were different, but um, it doesn't mean that we're going to fade away. <laughs> But as a group, it's much easier to sustain yourself. Um, it's, it's much easier to share um, your passion. It's much easier to share equipment, to share the rent. The practical things of being an artist are, are fundamentally easier in a group. And, look, I, I was so interested to hear Joel's version of, you know, you're having a, a, a visioning session, which is absolutely critical to being an artist, you know. So in Grace Street, we have mini summits. That's what we call them. <laughs> well, we have meetings and stuff. We mentor each other once a week. Everybody gets a turn. Um, that person sets the criteria of how they want to be mentored, what they want to, what kind of criticism they want, whether they want sounding boards. And this is what this is this is the the the, the success of Grace Street that we've been able to do that. In our summits, though, we have um, we have much broader vision about what where we sit within the context of practice. So not only our individual practices, but locally, um, nationally, and internationally. What what do we do? Who are we? Why are we? Those are the fundamental questions that that drive us. So we have a bigger picture of where we fit. Um, we can set some goals. They can be collaborative or individual. Um, but just taking time, that time, special time, to think about your where you are now, where you've been, and where you want to go, it, it's, it's critical to survival. Oh, that's so, so lovely, Catherine. I think that that's like so, yeah. I feel like it's strange that it was only under COVID that I made the decision that I was going to be an artist for the rest of my life. And so it's just like, yeah, you do kind of like go through these ups and flows and no matter what what it looks like, it's just always there, kind of like in 
an illness, but not really. You just can't switch it up. <laughs> You're a um, yeah. yeah, an affliction. Um, I, I'm sort of, you know, I want to hear a tiny bit more from Joel and sort of open up just more enough free-flowing questions between us all. But the thing that I'm interested in with you, Joel, in relation to this conversation is that, at least from my perspective as someone who works at West Base, architects are actually a really important part of the ecology because they have money um, and they love collecting art. And so my, like, I'm just really interested into why for you contemporary art is a thing. Um, what is it that it can do that architecture can't? What questions mm. are you trying to think through mm. in architecture that couldn't be answered in, in that sort of thing? And, and so why is it that, that you've, landed at contemporary art given the you know realities of the financial situation that one may find themselves in of, mm, mm, you know mm. the difficulties that that maybe would have been subverted if, if you had continued being a practicing architect yeah still still involved in i think kind of urban spatial decision making um discourse at all times i think uh, practicing um even as you know like as a Wiradjuri man, mixed heritage, I know I, how I appear, I am already extremely overrepresented within architecture, right? And also within the arts. But I think in a, in a, in a literal material way, architecture represents resources <laughs> explicitly. And buildings take time. They take time, decision-making processes around um, urban redevelopment and all these other things take a lot of time. So there is a, there's a, I think kind of how both kind of Jamie and, and Catherine have sort of spoken about the immediacy, the sort of first response kind of relationship that I think kind of arts practice and arts workers sort of have in relationship to those things. It was, it was the urgency of the sets of conversations that I was trying to have in relationship to my own community, which was, you know, rapidly gentrifying in front of all of us and, and how that kind of knock-on effects were kind of being felt in other places. And, and it also there's a, um, there's a real quality, especially. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a funny balance to strike, but I feel like a lot of a lot of blackfellas could probably identify with this in lots of ways. Is so you're invited in with a with a certain sense of guilt from certain people in certain spaces, and you have to capitalize on that. Like, I'm sorry, but like it's um it's a reality, and 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 a and an arts program or an arts project um can be experienced and can be understood at its surface value, which is often what the people inviting you in are engaging with, which can be problematic. But if you understand at what level you're engaging in your cultural currency, you can, you know, we all, we all do it. That's how we navigate it. But some really amazing things can happen too. And that's always been the sort of the interesting capacity of, of this stuff. But I, I still work in frameworks where I'm really interested in architecture, but I'm really not interested in building things. I'm interested in contracts. I'm interested in complicating land use agreements. I'm interested in title. Like today was our visioning session and I was like trajectory. My number one thing is like, let's talk about land. It's land back, right? And, and but that's much harder to do in the built environment decision-making processes that we currently have, right? But you can have a conversation about those things and potentially educate um, change a space, like literally spatially change the dynamics within a space within particular art projects and particular things that we do. Um, for one example, um, Lorna Munro, who is my collaborator and co-host on the show that I worked on, Survival Guide, we put together a sort of community archive in Redfern 
you know, there was no space for Indigenous people to even gather, right? And so we had to go up to 107 Project, which is like a, you know, white run RE on Redfern Street and hit them up being like, well, we want to use the space so that we can set up a community archive for a little bit, you know, super simple projects. They're like, of course. And they gave us the space for free, you know, you know that's how you do it. And we set up scanners and the whole project was just about scanning our nan's photos, like just letting our aunties and our nans come in and just scanning those photos. And, you know, at, on surface level, it's this really simple thing from an arts organization's point of view and from anything on paper. But what it did in that space over six weeks, pinning up every one of those photos and the resonance and the opportunity for, to talk, to see things represented in that way and the sort of the potency of, of that kind of as a set of conversations and relationships. You know, like people were bringing their toddlers in and so they could see the story because the story is not out there anymore. But also people could come in and feel like safe because they had a space that felt like it represented them and was their own in some capacity because literally their stuff was up on the walls. So there was like, there, yeah, there's an urgency and there's a rapid fire sort of nature to it. But the, I think those projects also help us think creatively about how, to, how we solve particular problems. After organising in my own community a lot where space is at a premium, I mean, that was my condition for joining party. I was like, I want free reign on the space. Like, I want to be able to use the space. Like, no one in my community, my cousins, my friends, we don't have space. Like, because <laughs> it's too expensive in Redfern. Like, let's, we need to find something. You know, it helps you think really logistically and really interestingly about, you know, really kind of basic stuff like safety and access and security. And, you know, these things that, like, you know, get written down on a piece of paper in an institution as, like, a framework of how to do things. But, like, that doesn't work for everybody, right? Like, it doesn't reflect everyone's values. It doesn't reflect everyone's sort of safety and security. So, like, yeah, I'm sort of talking vaguely, but specifically in that instance, it was, you know, after being unable to have access to space and rent for so long and then going into a white space operator, we knew that we had to provide a safety, like, essentially just, like, safety protocols for the police because Aboriginal people, you know, like, there weren't many spaces for black fellas to gather and they weren't going to gather unless they knew that they weren't going to be fucking harassed by the cops, right? And that kind of comes from projects that we do. And, and I think that that's really important. So I think it all loops back into the spatial stuff and it loops back into decision-making processes around built environment and stuff. I think it's true. I think, you know, that privilege in architecture, architecture reflecting um, resources is the reality. That's why they are the people who can buy the work. <laughs> <laughs> but that is also a very, you know, that's a very privileged mi minority. And that's the other thing. I don't connect with those people in the way that I connect with the people that I see reflecting my experience or experiences similar to me in arts community. And yeah, so, you know, kind of professional capacity in architecture, I don't think I need to take up that space as much as I want to support opportunities for other people to take up that space. So in Pari now, we're sort of trying to develop sort of a much more pedagogical framework and knowledge production for these specific things and kind of hopefully developing some some teaching models and some different things that are sort of centred around direct relationships to space. And then we can talk about that with artists and people going into the future. So it's a big part of it, but I, yeah, I don't know. Did I, I feel like I'm treading off now. That was really amazing. I'm just so aware that all of us are artists and so few of us in this conversation so far have actually talked about the sort of art that we do oh, today, which, like, which is actually really interesting. I was going to say, today, today, in, the, today in, the, in, the, in the visioning, we were like talking about Pari and its exhibitions. We were like, the exhibitions are really incidental, hey? Like, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. 
that and, and, it, and it seems like what's coming from this, this conversation from all of it, yeah, from what I've heard is that the practice of making art is so far removed from just this idea of this constant production of individual works for exhibition in a gallery, for collection by an institution, you know, it takes so many different forms. There's a question that's come through from um, from Emma, from Emma Faye, thinking about the role that local communities, local artistic and cultural communities can play being enablers of a new vision. And obviously we're at a time where a lot of these different sort of localities are in need of certain new vision because it seems like everything's really broken. So it's just, yeah, I'd love to throw it open to, to all of you. Like, yeah, what are the sort of visions that you feel like are coming out of, of artists and cultural workers that are, that are really needed right now? And sort of what are the deep sort of questions that people are asking? Or yeah, how is it that we're going about sort of working locally to, to build a new vision for for art, for culture, for relationships and artistic community? I might just start with because this is really fresh. We were talking about this today, Hari. Like, I think a really key aspect of that is like transparency. <laughs> you know, like arts organizations, at least in Sydney, and I know in most of the other places, like conditions in which your labor is kind of engaged with, like other volunteer like organizations. Organizations, like in Sydney, I think more than anywhere, it has this like turbo place where there's like these places that are sort of optically identified as, as like artist run orgs, but they're like in and of themselves are institutions <laughs> and they operate in a very particular way. And it's not particularly transparent about what's expected of you and how you can cooperate and how you should engage in those things. And so like one of the large parts of what we're trying to do with Pari is like have absolutely everything accessible from anyone who wants to engage us. So in terms of like the budgets into our programs, our structure, our website, the source code is open to you, like having everything as a resource to model from, because I mean, that's the point I'm trying to get to is it's a model. Like Pari isn't the room and it's kind of not even all of the people all the time because that's always going to change. It's a model, right? And, you know, this is me kind of regurgitating what has been like three years of development from people like Tian and Cal and Justine Youssef and Akila and, you know, all of these amazing people that I really want to honour because they set the groundwork for something that I got to be involved with and now get to sort of weigh in on in some capacity. So I think transparency is really key um, in like a, you know, in a really clear way because we want, how else can we expect? I don't know, it's, you know, you can be capo dog about it and be like, look, we've got, we're the best at something, so therefore we get all the work, right? Or you get all the things and that's how you change things competitively, right? And like, that's, I think that, that there's the space for that in other things. But um, for us, like, we want to have everything open so that people can come to us and ask questions and be like, oh, how do you guys do that? And how, do you, how does this run? And how does this happen? And be like, yeah on the website where you can come in and talk to us and it's really chill. <laughs> um, so transparency is a big one. Yeah, it's kind of like a metaphor for being an artist, actually. I think transparency is uh, really important as an organisation, but as an individual who creates outcomes that, you know, I think the outcomes are kind of just the tip of the iceberg. We all strive for outcomes and when you're applying for funding, that's what you have to spruik the most, you know, how, how wonderful and how expansive is your outcome. In actual fact, I think the processes of thinking and, in fact, talking about the actual processes gives people a lot of insight into how the organisation ticks. 
how how vital it is, how how human it is, how humane it is. As an artist, I strive to do that all the time. In fact, I think I keep on saying that the process is my artwork. <laughs> you know, that's the outcome. That's sometimes more important and rich and challenging to communicate than the outcome. But some people only want magic tricks like organisations that will fix things and uh, be perfect, but, but they can't be. We can't be because we're not. We're not perfect beings. And I, I think it, it's, that's a myth. <laughs> and so I think showing our processes, talking them through, being transparent, as you say, Joel, is critical. And, and that's what I'm getting from you, Jamie, too. Um, your thinking, your personal experience is, is flavouring the pathways that you're following now. And I find that really interesting. Um, I, think, I think that as a performance artist, there's, there's a magic in liveness. And, and, and I think liveness is a really interesting thing in conversation in, in this context in response to the questions of process and because it, especially in the kind of participatory forms that I work in, that liveness is constantly, that's the, the contested territory. Uh, you know, you're inviting participants, audiences as participants that will affect the very momentary, moment to moment kind of thing that happens and the way or the way the rest of the work plays out, while at the same time holding on to the frame of the, the work you've created. And, and so to me, I guess, you know, that there's a reason why I ended up making that kind of work, I think, because I feel like it, it is philosophically in my nature. And a lot of my storytelling is autobiographical as well. So I think, you know, we, we talk about transparency. It's a really interesting thing where, yeah, like being able to talk about really vulnerable things or your failures or your, you know, your process. You know, and as makers, right? We, when you start making a work, you have a hunch. You have a hunch of what it might be, but you but you have a practice, so you have a process that you know. But you also know that so much can change, and you're willing to move with it. And as you go closer to the hunch, you might end up making something totally different. But each time, you know, you readjust that hunch as you go in, and it's that to be transparent about that part. Yeah. But transparency is an interesting thing, Joel, because I think then from the perspective of then an organization, like personally, I have no problem with that. Now, how do I engender that in a trans in, in an organization? And and I suppose, you know, so one of the things we're doing an expert is to remove the idea of an EOI uh, and the expression of interest and applications and that kind of uh, and, and for for me that reasons uh, to do with labor, but also totally accept appreciate that there are many spaces that require that as a, a function. Um, and then especially like, you know, we, we have a very close relationship working with Moreland City Council. And, you know, when you look at local governments and, and those kinds of spaces, they really have to have such structures in place to process information and people and money. But as a small to medium arts organization, then for me, a lot of that thinking like, OK, how do I engender that relationality in how we curate and meet artists? But at the same time, that's a, a process that often will get criticized for being not transparent because the idea of you curate people you know. But then I suppose, again, in, in, in coming into this space with, with that personal practice is to, to then go, well, how do we always challenge ourselves to go, who else is not here? Mm -hmm. You know, which I think in a place-based kind of way, that's, that's you, you know, usually in my set of questions when I come to a new site or a new context, when I'm making work to, is to map who's here and then map who's not here, right? Whose stories are here and whose stories are not here. So it's interesting trying to, I think for me, trying to, to transpose this practice into the organization with the rest of my staff 
because I know how to do this. Now, how do I get my creative producers to understand this tacitly as well? Not just not just going, oh, this is Jamie's strategy or the vision, but tacitly they grow into that practice as well. And that that being the transparent, what's transparent? Am I making sense? Yeah. Totally. It's interesting. I think we talk about this a lot and I've thought about this a lot more broadly before getting super involved. It's like what you're like, what are you trying to instill? And what is relation? So what is actually built up from the relationships of what comes in, and 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 when does something become, you know, like a practice and a protocol that is translatable and trans and 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 movable, um, and people can sort of have a checklist or whatever they want to do, and or and how much of it is, yeah, embodied and relationship based, and how do we how do we kind of and it's a yeah we're a kind of especially in Pari, but it's, it, I have done this with lots of other organisations as well. It's like how do you how do you navigate these places, these two things, right? When, because we we kind of like perfect future tense. We're all still doing the things that we love, but you know that's not always going to happen. And, and how do you how do you navigate to kind of not foolproof, but create some sort of legacy or something that is passed on, or is that necessary? I think is another interesting question. I think we're seeing organisations in a particular arts environment um, and ecosystem at the moment who are not servicing um, maybe the people that they describe that they do and they are going in directions, um, which I think is well-deserved because they don't represent the things that they um, attest to, right? <laughs> and, and like, that's the process, right? Like, it's changed. Like, things are changing and um, the places that do represent, I think, are kind of at the moment at least getting a little bit of attention. And, and I think that that's an interesting sort of Mo movement, but yeah, I think it's still it's yeah it's a it's a tension for me about how yeah well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to foster a space that just allows for relationships to be formed, and that is the most key and important thing, or is there actually like oh no this is proven this is an important value that we want to sort of translate and continue to many for many people or generations or whatever to sort of take forward if we're going to talk about utopia in the future right yeah i'm so glad you brought up transparency joel it's you know being a bit of back and forth in the chat and i feel like for me as someone who came to art really late sort of grew up into my sort of early to mid-20s not even kind of realizing what art was you know growing up in kalgoorlie like the art world is purposefully opaque and West Space, in its legacy that has this huge reputation, I think, has a history of being incredibly opaque and exclusive. But I think that, that transparency is actually comes from hopefully this belief where it's like art's for everyone. Like it's and that transparency is trying to transmit this like capacity and toolkit for people where it's like, yeah, it's not magic, it's not smoke and mirrors, it's just like this hustle with your friends. And like and trying to like get the stuff up to build a space for the community around you. And it can look so many different ways. And some places, you know, through a sleight of hands, seemingly are able to sort of climb the rungs and look like they're really shiny and really big. But I guess in terms of transparency's sake, I was really shocked to come into this acting director role and realize that West Space had been functioning this particular way of like, you know, less than what Tony Elwood earns a year, but trying to like exist in the same space and function in this in this economic model that actually just doesn't function and doesn't exist. It's not, 
yeah, it's not real. I think I think, yeah. I think I think another I think another point for transparency, which kind of also bogs down into like a bit of bureaucratical nightmares, is like we create data, right? Like we create we create information about the ways that we struggle to survive. Like, <laughs> like that should be public. <laughs> like that should be accessible. Um, that should inform hopefully policy decisions down the track when we think about different large scale communities, different scale communities, and new visions, right? So like. That's the labor, like, because we care, right? And holding is an act of care. And we hold on to this stuff because we care about the communities we exist in. We care about the work that our friends make and the things that we want to connect to. And so how do you, like, kind of take that step further and hold on to some of this stuff, which sometimes can be hard. So, so it's, it's, not, it's not easy to hold on to these things. But it's also, like, it's important because these numbers, I mean, they tell a story and they can tell a story about how hard it is <laughs> <laughs> to actually survive, like, and, and maintain, but like what you just mentioned, Andy, the fact that that, that was completely opaque is like so strange. Like, in a way, right? Like, it, it seems antagonistic to being like finding any help or getting anything, like seeing anything change. But yeah, I, I guess to sort of take the um, the conversation because I'm, I'm, you know, sort of aware of the time to take the conversation in a direction where we can maybe move towards you know, a lot of optimism and hope and and thinking about where to move into in the future. I, you know, I, I do a lot of um, professional development stuff at art school. And I think people are, you know, for, for graduate students and graduate, people even doing their masters. And I think people are really shocked that it's like, no, I never studied art. I didn't do any of this, but this is sort of how I did it. And this is kind of like the steps that I followed to kind of keep together a living and a community and a life in art, even though like five years ago, I didn't even know it was possible. What do you think that this sort of early generation that's coming up through now that it's so sudden we're actually at like risk of losing, you know, thinking of thinking about those artists that's coming up now as all these resources are, are going and sort of disappearing. What, what knowledge do you think emerging artists need now? And, and, what support and what resources do they need to sort to sort of flourish? Mm, that's where I say you know a group model works perfectly, but I want to end in a positive <laughs> We need to be aware that there's a little bit of a gap here, you know, between what's happening with education, you know, what's feeding our culture. That's the question. What's feeding our culture? How can we plug that gap that's about to emerge even? in a broader sense, because there's, where are the artists coming from? Where are the seeds, you know? There's still some incredible passion uh, around, and that's what's going to carry us through. Communication, uh, humanitarianism, the fact that we're, we've had time, an incredible time in the last two years to reflect more on these things of what's important. That's what's going to carry us through. That, that's what's going to encourage young artists to be artists those that, that realise that, you know, we have to care beyond ourselves uh, about the world we live in and, and achieve some kind of balance. Uh, and, and we're capable of expressing that. Uh, young people in particular give me great hope. You know, they're leading these climate change uh, marches. Um, it's, it's, it, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to think about. We need a lot of strength and we need a lot of cohesion for that to happen. And, and I think the voices that have been through, coming through today's symposium have been incredibly powerful, uh, incredibly inclusive, 
and shown a lot of humanity. So today's given me a lot of hope. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. I, I'm not concerned about the same thing, Andy. I, I, I reckon people will continue to make up regard. I think also more and more, you know, I, I won't speak on their behalf, but I am surprised and I, I'm, I'm aware of this, that young people are already working differently. It's just that we're not working it with them, so we don't know, but they are, you know. I, I don't think they're concerned by some of that stuff. I think what, what I concern myself with is, is to continue that relationship stuff because that's that's the one thing I can give and then actually trust that people will still make up like as with you know Catherine's story you know like I just think people have always come together people have always you know we, the ideas are the easy part right sit around for another hour and we'll come up with new projects like easy mm. uh, finishing them is the other thing right so and that comes with yes those kinds of tangible skills that you will learn anyway um but but yeah, I think hence the the role the, the role of relationships and the role of us as that intergenerational like exchange that I have something to learn from these young people too. So I you know I'm not concerned about what they will need to make art happen. They will make art happen. I think how to for us then is just to constantly nudge at the 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 the, the, the structures and, and the beams and the scaffolds. Um, you know, in a soft and gentle way so that it becomes easy for people to push through them. I think the thing I also want to say, you know, before, there are stories within the story, you know. So the narrative that, you know, Joel and Andy was talking about, like, but there's narratives within those narratives as well. So, again, if we constantly reference that 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 arc of that storyline, as you said, Andy, that we operate within uh, organizations that you know are less than twenty hours salary. But at the same time, then within our financial story, what's the story I want to tell them? You know, and so you know, one of the one of the financial narratives in Next Wave that um, this model has allowed us to shift is suddenly now in dollar value, I'm paying artists on par as I'm paying staff, and in an organizational budget, and and with when we staff, you know, I have less stuff, but they're on benchmark salaries where they're better taken care of and not burn out. Like that's a story. And I can hold on to that story. That's a win. That's a win for me as, as the incoming CEO. That's a win. But that's a win for the sector as well. And that's a story I'd rather talk about rather than the idea that I'm not earning as much as, or, you know, my organization and the NGV. Like that's not, again, who, who do we want to be orientate towards as, the center of the narrative that it's not them you know and so I think again the craft of a storyteller coming into run an organization is I get to write the stories now and, and and I'm gonna yeah which for me also ties into that that sense of time that you know um talking about wanting to be an artist for the rest of my life you know that's something I've thought a lot for, a, a lot as well and and I think that's the point right that I want to do this for the rest of my life if we talk about dramaturgy and rhythm and pace, then what's that structure over time? What's my story arc over time? I don't, it's not a career peak or a high, it's, it's an app and a flow and a lull and a change. And yeah, I, I can't, you know, like Joel, you can be an architect and then leave and then come back and go somewhere else. Like all those paths are possible. And I think those kinds of narratives are the ones, if anything, then young people and uh, emerging artists need to know there is no you know none of it is linear nor should it be none of it is binary nor should it be 
and you know you don't have to make it at 40 to make it as an artist the real mark is at 80 somebody still wants me to dramaturg their work you know that's my goal and but yeah I think you know that 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 slowing down that we started with this conversation for me is about this long game not fast game you know that's my vision I do wisdom for all of you they're a long game not fast game <laughs> and those stories within those those bigger stories you know they're just as important do you have anything to add John before I wrap up I think there was something that Jamie just said that really kind of resonated in this idea of telling the stories within stories and I think like who um who's in the story or maybe a different way of like how you how you're thinking about that narrative is like when it's like you know exactly who you're measuring yourself by and and and, and by what standards you are measuring the things that you're trying to achieve and um I had a nice conversation the other day where it's like you know, the fact that like larger organizations don't know what the hell I buy or what I continue to do within either like future method or <laughs> um, Pari is a good sign. <laughs> like, because I don't like how the system operates. And if you're sort of pushing in a direction that feels um, like it can't really be defined within the narrow frameworks that we have been unfortunately kind of had to like rigidly pushed into to, to survive and, and exist, then that's maybe making it a little bit more viable for someone in the future and helping sort of eke out those pathways in a nice direction. I think it's all about relationships. Like we've said this so many times, it's just that. It's just like, it's, um, and being earnest, I don't know, like, it's just everyone, like. Being earnest is so underrated. Like it's But just, it's so important. It's just like, it's just the coolest thing. Like it's just like, like it's actually like I don't know. There's the yeah. I think I think it's actually just the sweetest thing to be surrounded by people who really, really are earnest and and clear about what they want. And I feel like I felt that today um, when I was in this meeting and now in this session with you all. Like I think that that's what I find compelling and really cool about connecting with people is that when people are really honest and really clear about the fact that like yeah, things are shit, but also things can be really great. And we're doing this because we love it, right? And 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 that's. I mean, we love the relationships. The work we don't do because we love because we're not going to get exploited. I don't want I, I don't want those things to sort of like fold over into each other. I think do what you love narratives are pretty fucked up. But I um I think what we do love is connecting and, and, and forming these relationships. And I think that's really clear from this talk. And I just yeah, it's just such a privilege to connect with you all. Yeah, thank you all so much. Um that was it's great that it's a Saturday afternoon panel and I feel really invigorated as opposed to um <laughs> sort of emotionally like yeah so thank you all so much it's such a pleasure being able to sort of chat and know that with people who I really respect and to have such a fantastic audience thank you so much for your comments in in the chat as as that rolled out um and I hope you had a a lovely day of panels and discussion thank you so much <laughs> thank you so much Andy and Catherine and Jamie and Joel it's fantastic to hear from you all and thank you everyone for all of your questions it's been really incredible I actually just wanted to ask a question myself, if that's okay, which is slightly off topic, but I think um, really comes back in terms of thinking about time and, and the long game as you were talking about, Jamie. And Joel, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the current edition of Runway, the thematic is time. And um, I just feel like there's so many stories within that that you could probably uh, cherry pick a little because I'm sure that there's a lot about relationship building and collaboration within that and um, I'm just wondering perhaps if we could even close the session on um, on 
you tell us telling us a little bit about the edition I know, I, especially when Jamie was talking about time, I just wanted to weigh in and be like, no linear fucking time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, I guess this is sort of, this is this is probably in the editorial essay as well, but it feels, feels like it's been the reminder that I've been able to say kind of pretty consistently. But like, so, like time as a, as a thematic was really fun because like, yeah, at surface value, it's pretty boring. And then you think about it for a second and it gets really fuzzy and you're like, oh, how good is that? And the, and to see people respond to that is really generative because I think it does what the what the um the prompt was made to do, which is um kind of back to this idea of what I would say is the kind of core to any sort of like abolitionist or decolonial sort of um, framework, right? Which is about holding space for as many definitions and as many possibilities as possible. Um, and so when you push past the surface idea of like how time might operate in the way that it's you know structures our kind of capitalist society that we all exist in it becomes really clear how we're all subjectively and physically and emotionally and spiritually in different times and that that as a base point as a place to share and to realize all of that really like interesting um detail maybe minutiae is what you could call it and the opportunities to find shared objects of value in that is what's really um, compelling, and so that was always the sort of that was the that was the goal, and I'm just really excited to um, support all of the artists that got to be involved. I mean, it's really fun to spend other people's money on commissioning art. Like, it's just like the best thing. So that was really great, and it, yeah, it went live yesterday. So if you guys want to check it out, it's all there. There's some really amazing work. It was a lot of first times for a lot of artists as well, which I thought was really incredible. Like, not first times in their practice, but first videos, first essays, first, you know, like, and I think that that's also a really amazing thing to try and support, right? Is like pushing people um, into or letting them, inviting them to push into other spaces. So they don't just get put in these like narrow pathways of like, I'm a video artist who does this one thing, right? Like, you're passionate about it, sure, but I think it's about supporting, you know, holding as many um opportunities as possible so yeah that's that was the that was the frame but again no linear fucking time thank you so much i think that's such a generous way to end this session and also the entire day it's been such a beautiful day with so many I feel very special right now it's been a lovely bunch of conversations and so much enthusiasm and honesty and respect from everyone so thank you so much for being here Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.